turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 8, 5, 8 through 6, 12. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is Havel. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing from his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink, and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is Havel. It is a grievous evil if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoys no good. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is Havel and striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be already has been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to the man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
Well, you can keep your Bibles open there to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and 6. It's a longer reading. We're going to do our best to get through all of it today. That means a short introduction is what that means. So, Though I am tempted to, uh, considering our catechism question and our prayer of confession, I'm really tempted to preach on the Lord's, the Lord's Day, but I'll refrain from, from doing that. Um, I just That has so impacted my life personally in our family, uh, the value of the Lord's Day. But here I go again. I'm not going to preach on it. So, um, Okay, so Ecclesiastes. This is a book that is teaching us how to live in light of the end. There is one thing certain in this life, death. And the preacher, Solomon, wants you to know that well. This is why we've been repeating it, why he repeats it so that you live life backwards, uh, live in light of the end. And we said earlier in our study that the word uh, havel, thank you, Chuck, for uh, bringing out that sense, uh, havel, which is translated mostly vanity or maybe meaninglessness, we have tried over the last several weeks and months to display to you, to show you that the word havel does not mean meaninglessness or vanity. It simply means short. Your life, James says, James chapter 4, the Ecclesiastes of the New Testament, your life is a mist. Havel simply means vapor. There was a man named Havel. His name was Abel. Same word. He didn't live long. All right? Havel. Abel. Cut short, vapor, mist. It doesn't mean that Abel's life was meaningless or pointless or full of vanity. It simply means mist. You are here and then gone. That's what this book has been teaching us. So as we begin chapter 5 or continue in chapter 5 rather, we want to talk, or I want to talk to you today about challenges to enjoy life. The challenges we face to enjoy life. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, last week, uh, we saw that we need to guard our steps, verse 1, when you go to the house of God. Now, that could mean, we talked about, that God is so holy that we need to be careful when we walk in those double doors. This is holy ground, a la Exodus 3, 5, that he, in the same sense he told Moses. But, we said last week that probably the, the sense is, though that may be true, maybe another sense is that uh, there are some dangers in the church, religious hypocrisy, hasty speech, so on and so forth, that we need to guard ourselves from. So chapter 5 begins with this comment on the value of the church and worship. Well, that's all fine and good here but what happens when you walk out those doors? You encounter a life that is difficult. You encounter challenges or threats to your faith that, well, threaten your ability to enjoy life under the sun, right? This is the life that we live, fallen. It's a messed up world. So in a sense, it, Ecclesiastes gives us the ideal. Here's what life is like in the church. Here's how you ought to be like in the church. But when you go out, he gets 
very realistic. You have challenges to enjoy this life. And enjoy it you must. We'll see that today. Enjoy it you must. So, the first challenge to enjoy life is the violation of justice. The violation of justice, if you're taking notes. Verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there is yet a higher one over them. So there's the violation we encounter in this life, in this fallen world, this violation of justice. We encounter this often in our world today, as the preacher did in his day. Job 5.7, don't you love the, the wisdom of the prophetic or these wisdom books? Uh, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. You read that in Job 5.7, you're thinking, yeah, absolutely. Just as sparks fly upward, man is born to trouble. That's the realism. That, that's the realism of Ecclesiastes. That's the realism of this book we call the Bible. And he says here, does he not, when you see this stuff, when you encounter the violation of justice, don't be amazed. Don't be surprised. This world is cursed. This world is fallen. Don't be surprised at what you see. Now, there's two reasons I think you could go that undergird why he says this. Don't be amazed. The penultimate answer, the secondary answer, would be there's a pyramid scheme. <laughs> Look at it. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there is yet a higher ones over them. There's more going on than you, th than you think, than, and, and then you know. There's a pyramid scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme. Everyone's corrupt. Not just what you see. The local official is corrupt, but you know what? So is the state, and so is the federal level. That's just what happens. Don't, don't be surprised. Don't be amazed, he says. It's a pyramid scheme. Maybe that's what his sense is here. Or... Perhaps the ultimate answer, the theological answer from Scripture, all of Scripture, would be the depravity of man. <laughs> Don't be surprised. Don't be amazed that, there, that there's a violation of justice in this world. We said it today in, in Sunday school. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. All have become corrupt. Can we, change our, can we change our spots? No, Jeremiah says. We have all rejected God. There's, there's a depravity of man, so don't be surprised. Don't be amazed. Revelation 9, you, you see the horrors of hell. You see the smoke of deception. You see the horrors of war in our day. And the Bible in Ecclesiastes says, don't be surprised at the violation of justice. And yet, beloved, and yet, don't you feel a little bit hopeless and, dare I say, a little bit angry when you encounter the violation of justice today? Don't you feel the tension that the preacher is wrestling with here? This is a challenge to enjoying life, what we see, what we encounter. The tension is right in front of us. And yet, beloved, maybe, maybe there's a subtle encouragement here. Verse 8 again, look at it. The high official is watched by a higher, 
and there are yet higher ones over them. Perhaps there's a subtle encouragement there that ultimately, beloved, ultimately, all the corruption is watched by the high King Jesus, who is ultimately the just and righteous one. He's the one presiding over all things. He's the one presiding over this world. He's the one presiding over this church. I want you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. That they might have a sense of the great love of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. You know, it's true for the Ephesian church. That's true for you, beloved. The immeasurable greatness of Christ and his power to rule over this world, though the violation of justice remains. He says, according to the working of his great might, the the immeasurable greatness of his power, and now he stacks it again, the working of his great might, he says. Oh, look at King Jesus here, beloved, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's where King Jesus is today. He's the high one of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and he's watching over it all. And look where he's placed as he ascends to the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There he is, beloved. Yes, there's a violation of justice. Yes, there's the oppression of the poor. But nothing has changed with Christ. He is still seated here Far above, do you see it? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. The lower courts and the high courts are watched by King Jesus. He put all things under his feet. That's a picture of subjection. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Can we, in this life, in the midst of this world, still enjoy life as a gift? Yes. Yes. Why? Christ is king. Christ is king. There he is in Ephesians 1, just for you, for the taken. He's the lion lamb of Revelation 4, 5, enthroned, ruling in the midst of his enemies. Ruling in the midst of his enemies. There he is, the lion lamb, enthroned. Oh, as we sang this morning, beloved, that though this world seems off so strong, and does it not, that though this world seems off so strong, How does the hymn say it? God is the ruler yet. 
That's right. God is the ruler yet. Revelation eleven 15, I'll close with this, just for the first point. We will one day, beloved, say to one another that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The violation of justice will end. Hallelujah. Praise be to Christ. Well, secondly, we need to be moving on. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, back there. The second threat to our ability to enjoy this life, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, is the love of money. I know the book of Ecclesiastes is not relevant at all. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the second threat is the love of money. He who loves money, verse 10, will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is havel. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Listen to this, beloved. Listen to the preacher exhort you this morning. The love of money will not satisfy you. The pursuit of it, the love of it, the craving of it. He who sets his heart on money will not be satisfied. Why? This also is Havel. It's short. It's brief. It won't, it won't stuff and fill your eternal hole you have that you want. So money can't satisfy because it's, it's short just like you are. When you try to get out of money what God never intended, you will be ruined. If you try to suck out of money some existential bliss of joy, you will never get it because it was never intended for you to have it that way and you will be ruined. Furthermore, verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Money attracts leeches. That's the wisdom. You have more money, you're going to have more friends. Well, not really friends, leeches. People are going to want more. They increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He just sees his money, just poof, it's gone. They've taken it all. Sweet is the sleeper of a laborer, whether he eats much or, or, or little or, or much. If you just go to work and, and have enough to pay the bills, you, you have enough to make ends meet, you can sleep well. You don't have leeches in your life trying to suck all the money out of you. You can sleep well, but the full stomach, he says, of the rich, well, will not let him sleep. He's always wondering if, if someone's going to take his money. So he lies awake at night. I wonder where my money's going to go. You can't sleep. First uh, Timothy chapter 6. Turn there with me, if you would. First Timothy chapter 6. Paul, again, exhorts the church in Ephesus. With Timothy this time at the helm. First Timothy chapter six, verse ten, uh, verse six. A godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So contentment does not lie in anything in this world. Your contentment, Christian contentment in this life, is not based on anything or anyone in this world. But, verse 9, those who desire, can you hear Ecclesiastes here? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, a trap, into many senseless and harmful desires. Don't you, way the love, don't you love the way that Paul says? It's just senseless. You didn't need to do it. That plunge people into ruin and destruction. Here you go. For the love of money, the love of money is not the root, it is a root of all kinds of evils. You know what happens when you crave money? You get jealous and envious. All kinds of evils spring up in your soul. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's like a spear. The word picture here is when you, when you reach out for money, the spear, the spear of sin stabs you, he says, pierce themselves with many pangs. The idea is suicide. John Wesley, I think John Wesley can help us with our love of money and the way he used it. He was born in 1703, American evangelist of the 18th century. He's famous for saying, quote, listen to this, having first gained all you can, and secondly, saved all you can, then give all you can. In 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. The first year of his income was 30 pounds. And he found that he could live on 28, so he gave away two. In the second year of his income, doubled, but he held his expenses even. And so he had 32 pounds to give away, which in that time was a comfortable year's income. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, so Wesley's rolling it in. But he gave away 62 pounds. In his long life, Wesley's income advanced to as high as 1,400 pounds in a year. That's a lot of money. But he rarely let his expenses rise above 30 pounds. He said that he seldom had more than 100 pounds in his possessions at a time. So the way Wesley begins to use his money begins to baffle the English tax commissioners. They investigate Wesley in 1776, insisting that for a man of his income, he must have silver dishes that he was not paying excess tax on. It's like, I don't know, never mind. He writes to the English Tax Commission, I have two silver spoons at London and two at Bristol. This is all that I have at present. And I shall not buy any more while so many around me want bread. When he died in 1791, at the age of 87, the only money mentioned in Wesley's will was the coins to be found in his pockets and dresser. 
most of the 30,000 pounds he had earned in his life had been given away. I think Wesley provides a good illustration as to what it looks like, what it can look like to free yourself from the love of money. Ecclesiastes 5, the, the second or the third threat to enjoying life's gifts is the uncertainty of money. The uncertainty of money. Verse 13, there's a, grie- there's a grievous evil or there's a grievous tragedy, I think is the better translation, that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. So he, this man hoards his, hoards his riches. And those riches were lost in a bad adventure. Bad venture. So we don't know how they were lost. We don't know if it was unwise or wise. He could have just bought land in northern Africa and the ship sailed on the way there and there goes all his money. Who knows? But he says he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. He's like the echo of Job, is he not? You know, you and I are going to leave this world as we came with nothing. That's the point here. Riches are not something stable. You can lose them in a bad, bad venture, wise or unwise. There's something not to put your weight on, not to lean upon, not to trust in. Don't do it, the preacher says. Free, your, free yourself from the love of money and free yourself from the, from the certainty. You thinking that there's some stability to be had in money. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, for the sake of time, he says, uh, tell the rich, Timothy, to not set their hope on the what? Uncertainty of riches. And then he says, but to set their hope on God, who provides all things for us to enjoy. Paul says that. There is one thing in this life that is stable and certain. God. God is certain. God is stable. The Lord Jesus Christ and his blood and righteousness is the only thing you must trust in in this life. You could leave this room today and tomorrow be diagnosed with stage four cancer, have no idea. You could lose your health, you could lose your wealth in the blink of an eye. And yet, and yet none of those things can take away the fact that your sins are forgiven and that you are in union with Jesus Christ forever, now and forever. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only thing certain in this life. His blood, his righteousness is enough. What does the hymn say? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, his righteousness. I dare not trust. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That man knew where to put his faith not on the uncertainty of riches, as this man did, but on the certainty of Jesus Christ. Some of us, I believe, today are looking for security in all the wrong places. It's a job, it's a spouse, it's a marriage, it's a move. 
as kids. Free yourself from the sand of this life and place your faith on the rock-solid righteousness of Jesus Christ, who alone is certain. The fourth threat to our faith, or the fourth threat to our enjoyment of this life, is the gift of God. Well, actually, not really a threat, but um, it's what comes next in the passage, okay? So just bear with me. Okay, sometimes the outlines don't make sense, okay? So the, the, the heading is the gift of God, okay, is what I'm trying to say. Verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment on all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Can you believe that's in the Bible? It is. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. You know, some of us are like Gnostics. We, we think physical things are bad. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. You don't even remember your life because you're just having a ball with, with your own life and what God has given you. So hold on to that passage. We're going to come back to that. All right? Keep that in mind. Chapter 6, verse 1. So there's that man. He enjoys life. Here's chapter 6. Here's a different man. There is a tragedy, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. And what a tragedy this is. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. I interpret that to mean this man had no sense of God. But a stranger enjoys them. This is Havel. It's a grievous tragedy or evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Non-Christians and Christians alike will agree that one of the greatest tragedies in this fallen world is a stillborn baby. But here's this man. He's got it all. He has life. He's got all the goods, but he's not enjoying them. He's got a hundred kids. He worked really hard, but his kids don't like them because evidently they didn't even give him a funeral. Think of it. You got a hundred kids. And when you die, not one of them thinks, you know, dad deserves a funeral. We should bury dad. No one says that. So his kids don't like, like him. He's not enjoying God's gifts. And the author says, I can't believe this is true. The author says, here's the implication. If you don't enjoy life's good gifts, if you don't enjoy what God has given you in this life, you're a worse tragedy than a stillborn baby. 
Yeah. If you are so preoccupied with a life that you, that could have been, should have been, want to have been, and you are not satisfied with the life God has given you today, you're worse than a stillborn child. This is why I had you keep in mind the end of chapter 5. This, this is the Christian life. You're thinking right about now, is this, is, has Ryan turned prosperity? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But beloved, you must enjoy the life God has given you under the sun. And this is, as we said before, this is miles away from hedonism. Hedonism sucks up, sucks up life for its own sake, for the glory of self. This man in the Christian life, you, me, we use this life, we, we accept what God has given us as our lot, as this text says, it's our lot to enjoy life and to glorify God under the sun because we're not going to enjoy, enjoy it when we're six feet under the, under the ground. So enjoy it now. It's good and fitting, he says, verse 18, chapter 5. It's good and fitting. It's right. It's proper. To eat, drink, and find enjoyment. All the toil. Don't play the pretend game. The make-believe game. Oh, I'll be happy when I have this. Or I'll be happy when I, when I get that. No, the lot you have now, Ecclesiastes says, enjoy it to the full extent for the glory of God and for the well-being of your soul. Martin Luther was once asked, what would you do if uh, Jesus Christ was coming back tomorrow? Do you know this story? I don't know if it's true or it's fairy tale or folklore. I don't know. Hard to say with history sometimes. He was asked, what would you do today if you knew uh, the world was going to end tomorrow? Christ was coming back. Do you know Luther's response? I love this. I would still plant my apple tree. What would you do? Would you try to be something you're not? Would you try to change your life or change yourself so frantically that it's, it's not really you? Do you hear Luther's wisdom? I'm just going to go about life as I always have been. Because all along I've been enjoying this life. All along I've been, I've been doing what I'm supposed to do. And you want me to change because the world is coming to an end tomorrow? No, I'm going to plant an apple tree. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to study the word. I'm going to raise my kids. I'm going to enjoy my friend. I'm going to enjoy my friends. Do you see his wisdom? Oh, I love Luther. I'm just going to plant an apple tree. Because I want to be now what I will be when Christ returns. You see it? What wisdom. What wisdom. Enjoy the gift of God that you have. That you have according to your lot. 
So I better see some apple trees planted in the next several weeks. Well, lastly, the last threat to enjoying life, the limitations of man. Don't we love that phrase? The limitations of man. Verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite or his soul literally is not satisfied. Look, you're going to work and it's going to fill your mouth, but it's not going to fill your soul. There's a limitations to work. It's a good gift. It just can't give you this. Don't expect some existential bliss from it. But it's good. Enjoy it. It feeds you. Verse 8. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? <laughs> what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? <laughs> you know, the wise man and the poor man are going to be at the same place one day. They're going to be in the ground. <laughs> This is one of those sucker punches of reality from the Ecclesiastes. What advantage, what is, what does, what advantage does wisdom have, have over folly? Well, in this life, yes, it's better in the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. It has, it has value for today, wisdom does. But eternally, you know what? You're, you're going to die. You're going to be next to the guy who's made his life a, a living mess. Limitations of work. There's limitations of wisdom. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be wise. There's just limitations to it. So he says here in verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. There's nothing new under the sun, he says. There's nothing new. The more words, the more havel. What is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his Havel life, and, which he passes like a shadow. This is, why, this is why you must take Havel as short. He lives the few days of his, his short life, which he passes like a shadow. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few, day of his, few days of his Havel life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? You know what? Not man. You know the answer to that question? Who can tell man what will be after him? And who knows what is good for man? You know the answer? God. God knows. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, Oh, I desire to know nothing, he said. I desire to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Is that your ambition, beloved? Who knows what is good for man? Oh, I, know what, I know one thing that is good for man to do in this life, and that is to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says in Philippians 3, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What can... Man say, after he dies, well, man can say nothing, but God can say everything. And what is God going to say over your life, beloved? Did you use it for his glory? Or did you expect too much from his gifts? Did you expect them to be saviors? Don't live that foolish life. Who can tell man what life will be like for him after he dies? Oh, God can, beloved. Come to Christ and know him. Let's pray.
our great God, we do uh, face many challenges in this life to enjoy the gifts you've given us in a right, ordered way. Help us, we pray, by faith to enjoy what we have. And thank you for not giving us what we don't have. Thank you for not giving us what we don't have. You've, you, you've, you've kept us right where you want us to be. And for that, we give you all the praise. Amen.